Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. I'm here today with Susan Epstein. She's been on the Goleta Union School Board for consecutive terms. I'm really excited to talk to Susan because we're going to dive right in and talk about what's going on with distance learning. How are you doing today, Susan? I'm good. And thank you, Josh. It's my pleasure to be here and have this conversation. Thank you. I'm really humbled that you take the time to uh, be on the show and uh, share what you know about this really important moment in time as it relates to distance learning and all of our kids going back to school and the teachers and everybody trying to figure it out. So here we are. We're, we're about a couple weeks away now from students having to start the school year and it's going to be distance learning and it's going to be rigorous but i want to just go to you because you know you're an expert on this tell me about what's happening right now with our schools and what's going to be happening when the school year starts again well i'm feeling optimistic that our robust remote learning is going to be a really good experience um, for the students and our teachers right now are uh, are spending the next week in professional development um, really uh, learning how they can use the best practices for online learning. And remote learning can also um, encompass paper packets um, and other materials that we would traditionally use. So it's not, so, it's not all on the computer. Yeah, so what, what has been your consideration as a school board member? What are the issues that weigh on you as you think about how students are going to be learning. There, there's so much talk about students should not be in front of a computer all day on Zoom. There, there's so much talk about how important it is for them to interact socially with their peers. You're, you're a parent, uh, you've been on the school board. What are some of the concerns, opportunities, challenges you see with this environment? Yeah, so it's, it's not ideal, uh, I think, everyone would agree that in-person learning is really preferable. Um, but I think we're, we're doing our best to make it still be a, a good learning experience uh, for all the students. Socially, I think it's gonna be a lot more challenging for students, you know, they um, are not gonna be seeing their peers in person and that, you know, that there, there's nothing um, we can really do about that because that's not yet safe. Um, they will on Zoom be able to see each other, you know, in their boxes on the screen. Um, and they can work in breakout rooms in pairs and in groups still. Um, so I think teachers are gonna be doing a lot to make sure that they check in with students that, um, you know, to check in on their social emotional status as well, um, whether that be one-on-one -on -one or in groups. And uh, again, you know, it's not, it's not as, um, a great socially emotionally is in person but I, I think there's a lot of techniques out there to still make it fun and um, to help students still develop those social skills yeah I have a daughter who's in the Goleta Union School District and so we have received a copy of the schedule and one of the things I noticed right away is that it's much different than how it was back in March so back in March when everything shut down it was a couple of Zooms. It was a Zoom in the morning, and then there was a Zoom in the afternoon. And then in the middle, they had independent work or asynchronous work videos. Uh, the teacher would upload worksheets. We'd print them out, and so she, she, you know, she would do them, and they would be due at the end of the week. So it was sort of the best they could do at that time. And I remember thinking, wow, we've gone from half a day in kindergarten to this. Now, looking at the schedule, it looks really rigorous. I mean, it looks like they're starting at 8.15, going to 2.45, and there's some recess time in there, but it's pretty, pretty long. Uh, you know, what can you say to sort of uh, parents uh, about what kids, what they can expect when they go back to school? Is this going to be sort of something that's half-baked, or is this something that's going to be super rigorous, just like if they were in the actual classroom? I think we're making it as close to the actual classroom as we can. There are differences because of the, the medium of online and the, and the physical distance. So um, one of the things we've learned is that um, if you're on Zoom, and this is kind of true for adults too, uh, if you're on too long, you kind of burn out, right? And so they're, they're trying to keep the instructional pieces to maybe 30, 40 minutes most. 
um, sometimes just 20 minutes, because I think that'll be much better for uh, students to have focused attention um, in that kind of an environment. Mm -hmm. And um, and so there'll be different chunks of time from 8.15 to 2.45 during them that, that there'll be, um, some of it will be synchronous learning, which means live with their teacher or live with their peers. And other times it'll be asynchronous where they might watch a recorded lesson that the teacher delivers or even a video of someone else delivering some, some information. And then they might have live time scheduled later where they're gonna do something where they apply what they learned, whether that's you know a math problem or um, some kind of reading comprehension. You know, there, there's different ways that they might apply um, something previously recorded. So they're going to be going on and offline throughout that time. Um, and I think that that is going to be um, more similar in terms of the content being delivered to what we would normally do. But the, the actual schedule and the technique will be a little different. Galita Union was planning, as I recall, there was the, there was a school board meeting planning a sort of, was it a hybrid return? Maybe you could talk a little bit about before the governor intervened. Um, as mm -hmm. I recall, there was talk about having kids return to school with masks, with uh, uh, social distancing, and sort of a, a hybrid kind of kind of fashion. What was the original plan before the governor intervened and said everybody's doing distance learning? So yeah, we, we did a pretty comprehensive preparation for reopening, which I think will be useful when we eventually can reopen, you know, it may be phased reopening again. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, that plan was to have a half day of instruction Monday to Friday in person. Mm -hmm. And um, for, you know, language arts and math, um, and a few other subjects in the morning, and then the afternoon was going to be the um, music and art and um, technology and physical activity mm -hmm. recorded lessons. So that that was the plan and we um, you know ordered a lot of deep cleaning systems and a lot of PPE plexiglass shields um, and really comprehensively studied how how we could do that safely. Um, but then the the metrics in our county uh, made that no longer safe. But that plan is going to be helpful because I mean ideally, the numbers are going to come down, and the governor at some point will probably allow schools to reopen, um, and the counties can decide, or school districts will be able to decide. So it sounds like you've got a plan ready to go in case schools are actually able to open sometime this fall. Yeah, absolutely, and we really look forward to welcoming students back on a campus when we can. Yeah, and students, they'd have to wear masks on campus, is that correct? That was in the plan. Yeah. Um, yeah. That they and, would, the teachers and the students and, you know, everyone six feet apart. You know, what do you think of, some parents are, and I'm not, let, let's break this up into sort of two, two things. Like, there are families that are pulling out of public school to just sort of do their own thing with their own curriculum and hiring whoever they can afford to do that. Uh, let's leave that aside for a second. But what are your thoughts on families who are staying in the public school system, but maybe having um, you know, a parent or, or somebody who's available during the day to maybe teach a few kids in the backyard or at least monitor their, their Zoom and facilitate their all-day interaction. Um, I asked this question at the public health department meeting the other day, and um, you know, they had sort of like a mixed signal on it. But what do you think? Do you think that that it's best for a parent or a family to somehow figure out a way to do it with their child in the home? Or do you think that uh, these backyard ideas where people sort of pull together and do the best they can for their kids also split the cost because it's expensive, obviously, as well to have somebody come in and help? What are your thoughts on that? And we're talking about people who are staying in the public school system here. Yeah, I think it, I think really each student is going to need some kind of adult helping because the classroom management piece is really important, particularly in elementary school education. And our teachers can do some of that through the internet. You know, they can make their instruction engaging and exciting, but to some extent it's, it is gonna require another person if, uh, you know, let's say the student is having trouble connecting or they intentionally decide they, they wanna act out and shut down their computer or, they just 
you know, something else happens in the house where they get distracted. It, it, it seems like with that age student, you're going to need some, some adult around to help. And uh, we've asked that parents provide a contact so that we have a number we can text so that if a teacher sees a student disappear, and we didn't have this in the spring, and it really, uh, you know, some teachers notice classes shrinking a lot over the day. So if they can text somebody and say, hey, what's happening? Can you check in with them? They're really, our teachers are really going to be partnering with other adults on that piece. And um, for a, a small percentage of families, they might say, oh, I have a, you know, there's a parent who can stay at home and do this. But we know most of our parents work. And so I think it's going to be a range of different uh, setups that people have. So we've, I know there's a lot of nonprofits that are working on creating pods as well. Um, and there's different childcare providers throughout our area. Some employers are providing that kind of childcare. And it's different than the usual childcare because it really is, you know, overseeing this, the online and um, asynchronous learning and the paper packets. It's almost more like um, a study room or something in high school where you have everybody doing their own homework and you're making sure everyone's just kind of staying on track. Yeah, so are you saying that uh, if a student pops off the Zoom, like during the synchronous class time, there's some mechanism for the teacher to check in and make sure they're still watching? Yeah. So that yeah. the idea is that if they disappear, they see, you know, they had, a, you know, 18 participants when the morning started with that Zoom and suddenly they're at 17, they can figure out who disappeared um, and send a, a, a text to the adult that's responsible for that child and say, can you check and see what happened? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be really cool because I know that um, just, you know, in March, it was sort of like everything was voluntary almost. Like, do right. what you can. Try, right. to, try to be there, you know, and there wasn't much in terms of accountability. But obviously, if this is going to be the way that it is for a while and teachers have had some time now to sort of uh, get, get some more professional development and training that, you know, I think the more structure is probably better, especially when we're talking about K through six children, for sure. Yeah, and there's there are a number of things that will be in place that weren't in spring. So, for example, in the normal school year, principals walk around campus and pop in classrooms, right, and can kind of support teachers as needed. And so similarly, we're going to I, my understanding is that principals will be able to pop into Zoom rooms of their teachers um, for their site and, and just, you know, make sure everything's going well, see if there's anything they can help with. Um, so that, that also is different from spring. And we are going to be taking attendance. Teachers will take attendance each day yeah. and have assignments due. So, and we also are going to be doing our report cards, bringing those back. And, you know, elementary school report cards, they're not they're really just about making sure that kids are, are meeting their developmental milestones and, and staying on track. Um, but this way we'll make sure no one, no one um, gets lost. Yeah. And what about the families that are saying, okay, we're just going to pull out of the public school system for a year and do sort of our own curriculum. Does the Goleta school board or do you as a board member, do you have any advice or direction or, or thoughts on, on families who might just say, forget this, we'll just do it ourselves? I don't know that there's many doing that. Um, yeah. I know a lot of people were thinking of doing that until they heard what we were doing. Yeah. Um, but at this point, I think it would be uh, unfortunate because we have such incredible teachers. You know, our teachers have had so much training um, and we are very generous with the amount of professional development in our district. When we have an opening for a teacher, we often have 200 applicants. So we have really highly qualified teachers. Um, and they, we are going to be using our same curriculum. And so when schools reopen, then all the students will be on this, you know, in the same place. There won't be gaps if they've stayed consistent with that curriculum. And, you know, I'm sure there are some great tutors out there, but I, it's hard for me to imagine that they could be anywhere near as good as our teachers. Yeah. Um, let's talk about equity. Obviously, equity has been a big issue. You know, I report a lot on Santa Barbara Unified stuff. We know everywhere statewide that equity is a super important priority now for, for school districts in terms of allowing every student to have the opportunity to be successful and feel comfortable in the classroom. What are some of the, the challenges or things that 
Galita is doing to address equity issues. It's hard enough physically in a classroom to be aware of these things, uh, but over over Zoom, what, what are some of the things that the district's doing to be aware of this? Well, one of the basic things that we did this spring was make sure that every student had access to the technology. So we immediately, when we had to close schools, we surveyed all of our families, um, which involved you know, using our bilingual community liaisons to go out and see what was happening because if people didn't have access, they obviously couldn't reply to our survey, but we were able to reach each family and find out what devices they needed and whether or not they had internet access. Um, and we then repurposed all of our in-classroom devices so they were ready to be distributed to the homes. And we also worked with Cox to make sure that we put up hotspots where there were clusters of people without internet access. We found there were certain areas with apartment buildings where nobody had internet. So we've now fixed all that. It took only about a week and a half and we, we got everybody online and almost 2000 Chromebooks distributed. Um, so that was pretty extraordinary effort by our community liaisons and our IT staff um, and our administrators working together and, and, and partnering with Cox too. Um, and so that piece, I think we're feeling pretty good about. There are children though who don't have a quiet space in their home to work. Um, you know, they, there are students who are, who are houseless. Um, there are students who might have uh, three families living in one home and uh, a lot happening, a lot of activity. So that's not really conducive to learning. So we're glad that there are nonprofits that are opening up spaces um, that are you know, small pods of students so that they can um, do their remote learning there. And uh, I'm hopeful there are no students who you know, fall into any gaps that we, we are able to provide this for everyone, but that is certainly a concern. So that, that's the technical access piece. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of our instruction, we did receive funding for COVID loss, basically students who have had um, learning loss. Uh, typically, if students miss a summer without summer school, we know that they slide back, uh, you know, more months in the length of the summer in their learning. And now it's been spring where not everyone learned as well in the spring, and then we didn't weren't able to offer summer school. So we know we're going to be catching up a lot of students at the beginning of this year and we've got in place assessments and we've hired um, a teacher who will be full time just working on catching students back up who had what we call COVID learning loss. Yeah, that's really cool. I got to say, you know, the Glita, Glita Union, I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, but uh, Glita Union School District, I feel like really is ahead of the game and does th a lot of things really well. Uh, I was impressed because, like, I grew up in um, Goleta. I went to DP. I went to a bunch of elementary schools. Mm -hmm. But I did go to IB and Elwood um, for a time, too. And my parents, they moved around, so I went to different schools. But um, I, with my daughter now, you know, so she's going, you know, to, you know, a Goleta Union School District. And it's just amazing. Like, you know, like, we went over there. We picked up her Chromebook. And, uh, you know, it's so exciting, you know, it's like she gets her own computer now. And, you know, the whole time she's talking about, I get my own computer. And it's like really cool. You know, it's like a service that like certainly, um, you know, it was not a, has not been around for for a long time. And then the, the lunch program, you know, the food security, you know, anybody yeah. can go by and pick up, um, you know, a sack lunch or lunch on a go. And that's something that's been really cool. Even when students were in school before COVID, uh, you know, they'd have the food trucks out and you can go out there and you could, you know, have, um, I think it's called supper, you know. So like Galita Union sort of does a lot of things um, really well. And I don't I don't know if it's maybe because it's, uh, you know, compared to some, comparison to some other districts, maybe it's because it's a smaller district. But this is a good transition into you. You've been 20 years, almost 20 years um, on or I guess it's almost 16 on the on the school board. So talk to me about that. What, what has that experience been like for you? And how, how have you, how have things changed since you started? Yeah, it's, it has been an extraordinary experience. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been lucky to work with such excellent, talented colleagues. Um, and we've really accomplished a lot together as a district. Um, it's been good. I've, I've worked closely now with three different superintendents who each were, um, great, great leaders and managers. I've learned so much working with them. Um, and I think, you know, that part of why our district does have a reputation for doing things so well um, 
is that we've had a very um, a lot of thoughtfulness. I think in everything we do, we, we we tend to create really good plans and then be nimble enough to implement them and adjust as necessary. Um, and we do hire really good people. We've had, as I said, great superintendents and great administrative teams as well as great teachers. Um, and we also, one of the, when I ran for school board in 2004, something that I wanted to see was a strategic plan. There, the district had never had one uh, to anyone's memory. And um, I came from the nonprofit sector where that was kind of a basic thing to have a strategic plan. So um, shortly after I joined, we had a search for a new superintendent and uh, one of the candidates talked about wanting to do strategic planning. And that was our, turned out to be our top choice for superintendent, uh, Kathy Boomer. And so when she started, we did our the district's first strategic plan. And it what we emerged from that process was a focus on personalizing instruction, making sure we really understood each student, what their challenges were, what their needs were, and um, you know what their strengths were. And we figured out ways to to really give as much attention as we could afford to provide um, to students. So we committed to having the lowest class sizes we could afford um, and to do kind of small regular assessments, not just of language arts and math, but kind of understanding students in terms of art and music and science and social studies so that we were really helping students thrive in, in so many ways and supporting the whole child. Um, that, I, I think that I once heard at the Gavert School, they had a class where they talked about how our district focused on the whole child, and it was unusual to see a district so focused on that. Um, yeah. About 10 years ago, we started really focusing on social emotional needs um, before it became popular. Now you hear it everywhere, but we yes. were doing that early and um, we adopted a curriculum called Second Step that focuses on teaching children um, ab about character and also conflict resolution. And we trained all of our staff, our playground staff, our psychologists and our teachers and the students. So everyone uses the same language when situations occur. And that's been incredibly helpful. Um, so I think when you create the conditions for learning, you know, if you have safe place, people feel, students feel comfortable to learn, they feel that there's a mentors there, people looking out for them, um, mm -hmm. it makes them able to learn. And then we thought about being future ready. That was really um, a lot of our work with the Common Core Standards. Uh, yeah. We transitioned to those under Bill Banning, the second superintendent I worked with. Yeah. Um, a lot of that's about getting students future ready, which is learning collaborative skills, uh, good communication and creativity. So we've, we moved to a lot of group work. You don't really see students in rows listening to a teacher much. They're almost always at the, in different groupings working to collaboratively. And that, that kind of came from the uh, professional sector. Corporations really want to see students learning to work in groups because that's mm -hmm. what people do a lot now in the work world. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that was an interesting phase, um, transitioning all of our curriculum to the Common Core Standards. Um, yeah. And um, we, you know, in everything we do, we're really interested in reaching out to our community. So we always uh, have a lot of ways for people to give feedback and we make sure, you know, we do it in person as well as surveys and everything's translated in English and Spanish. So we really have worked hard on having a lot of input when we've done these different planning processes. Today's podcast is brought to you by Goodwin and Tyne Properties. They have been in business for more than 16 years in Santa Barbara. Goodwin and Tyne offers full-service real estate brokerage with attorney-trained realtors who work together as a team to deliver their clients the most professional concierge service available. You can reach Goodwin and Tyne Properties today at 805-899-1100 or at www.gtprop.com. That's www.gtprop.com gtprop.com. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your story? I mean, we haven't talked in a long time. I remember back when I was at the news press, um, I wrote about you and that must have been 15 years ago. Okay. Um, it's been a while. It made a bit maybe when you were running or something. But um, can you tell us, tell me a little bit about your story and sort of how you got into uh, an interest in education and a little bit on your background and why you even ran for the school board initially? Sure. Yeah. So um, 
my mother was a teacher. She was a junior oh. high teacher in the public schools. And um, as a kid, whenever I'd come home, if you know I ever said I was bored at school, she would say, well, imagine teaching it. Think about how you would teach if there's any kids struggling in class. How would you teach the material? Mm-hmm. And I was never bored from then on. I would go kind of in my own head into teacher mode. <laughs> and so I think it even, you know, second, third grade on, I started thinking about how to teach the material. <laughs> and um, Education then became very interesting to me because I was always looking at how each teacher did it. And there's so many great teachers out there. Each has their own style um, that it that it was something that I, I just I liked a lot. Um, in college, I ended up majoring in um, something called symbolic systems, which was the study of computers mostly, but also how people learn. So we were looking at artificial intelligence, how you could create learning machines but also a lot of classes in psychology and linguistics to understand how people learn, and including children. Um, and so that was very interesting. And I was lucky to take a class with Mike Kirst on California public policy. He um, was the president of the State Board of Education, appointed by Jerry Brown, both in the 70s and then again more recently. Um, and uh, his, I, I had him as a professor in between <laughs> those two stints. And uh, so that was the first time I really thought about education public policies, uh, and it was fascinating. And then in law school, I took classes uh, in education policy as well, in education law, and was lucky to have Barack Obama as a teacher in law school in a a small seminar, about 10 people, and I wrote my paper in his class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and my paper for uh, then, you know, Instructor Obama, um, his class uh, was also on on education. I was looking at school choice, different models, and um, looking at how how that would um, whether they were actually helpful to students of color or not. Mm. Um, so I've I've been thinking about equity issues and civil rights, you know, for a long time, um, and education in particular. Uh, when I graduated from law school, I had an offer from a large law firm in San Francisco where I had worked the prior summer, um, but I instead uh, applied and got a grant to start my dream nonprofit. And um, I worked with uh, schools in San Francisco um, that serve low-income students, um, and we worked to increase community involvement in the schools. And so I did that for about six years. And then I had uh, my own baby (laughs) and decided to move back to Southern California where I'd grown up and uh, be closer to family. And, uh, you know, after I had been living here a couple years, some parents came to me and asked if I would run for school board. It it was shortly after uh, the Goleta School District had closed El Rancho School. Yeah. And my understanding was that they had... um, announced we need to close the school which one should we close and by asking that question all the schools became pitted one against the other pointing fingers saying that one should be closed and here's why and morale was really low at the end of that process and there was a lot of distrust among people who had been speaking at meetings and some of them had then decided to run for school board and so a group of the pta leaders from the different sites came together and said let's find someone who wasn't involved with all that Mm-hmm. And my kids were in preschool, but one of the PTA presidents had met me and knew I had this education background. So she approached me and said, would you run? Mm-hmm. And it, I had never thought about serving in public office. And, and I, I was a little baffled because I didn't yet have kids in the public schools. I hadn't been there yet. Um, but it intrigued me. till I thought I'll, I'll look into it. And so I met with each board member and I met with the superintendent. And it sounded really interesting. And then I met with each principal, walked each campus, started asking about the issues, called parent leaders at each site and went, you know, I think this could be a really interesting role to play. And and I thought the timing worked well because it was part time um, and I was raising kids and um, that seemed like a a good match for my skills and my interests. Um, And I felt, you know, I would be able to learn a lot and be able to contribute. I, I never thought I'd do more than one term, <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's funny. It turned into four terms, and it's never been boring. You know, we, mm-hmm. we always have such important issues. I, I feel like a lot of our meetings are high drama in a way. You know, people come in, and they go to the mic, and they share these very personal stories about their children or their workplace, 
And, you know, we listen and I, I really feel for them. And then we think about as a group, how we can best come up with solutions. Um, and, and so I, I feel like, you know, it's kind of the American town hall, but it's also about collectively raising our children. Um, it, it's so deeply meaningful work. Yeah. Hey, I mean, you said so much there that's so interesting in terms of your story. Um, but let me ask you about uh, teacher Obama or instructor Obama. Oh, yeah. uh, what, what do you, uh, you know, what do you remember about that time? What kind of teacher was he? Was he uh, 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 as as incredible of a speaker as we would all find him to be later? Or what was he like? Was he a regular teacher? How would you describe Yeah. That? So I would never have guessed he'd become a president um, yeah. be- because I didn't see him in that kind of setting. We were 10 students in a small room in a basement mm-hmm. uh, at Chicago Law. If you, you know, if you, if a famous instructor came, they got, you know, 100 students at least in their classes. And he was a complete unknown. So uh, some of the students at the time thought it was odd. I was choosing to take a class with a guy with this funny name that no one knew when we had some famous judges coming mm-hmm. <laughs> that you could take <laughs> classes with. Um, and the class was racism and the law. And I was really interested in civil rights and I wanted to take this class. Um, And so I didn't care that he wasn't famous. (laughs) Um, So he would walk in and there were, you know, again, little room and he usually sat on the table and he'd say, hey guys, uh, I was thinking this week we could talk about, he'd throw out a topic, uh, you know, affirmative action, or I thought we could talk about, you know, some criminal justice issue or, you know, whatever the topic was that week. And uh, he'd say, so here's some things I've heard and thought about, but I want to hear from you. What do you think? And he mostly listened for an hour, um, and which was really different for law school because most of the professors, lawyers talk a lot, and the law professors generally just <laughs> lecture. You know, some it's Socratic methods. You hear your yeah. su- your classmates, but uh, in Obama's class, it was really him throwing something out and then listening to us. And Chicago Law is an interesting place. It has a lot of political diversity. Uh, it's known for having a lot of conservative students. So even in a class on racism and the law, we had you know the whole spectrum politically, and we had some very engaged, fascinating discussions. Um, and he, but his focus really seemed to be what would be policies that would public policies that we could pass in America that would improve the lives of people of color. And so it was grounded in law, like understanding what the legal system had said, what precedents there might already be in that area. But then we were really looking at policy, what would be best. And then he'd ask, and how would you, how do you think we'd go about passing it? What would be the messages? How could, how could this actually be passed into law? Um, So it, it was amazing when he became president to feel like I had seen, I had a glimpse into his mind when he was just sort of mulling over these issues. Yeah. That's yeah, that's incredible. Just to you know, you had that opportunity. And it's funny how that is like everyone else is maybe trying to take classes with mm-hmm. more prominent sort of people with titles. And look how it turned out. You know, you got kind of um, lucky there, you know, you're, yeah, you're good fortune. Uh, you talked about growing up in Southern California. Where'd you grow up? In, in L.A. In L.A., okay. And what kind of student were you? Like, you've always struck me as, like, super, super, super intelligent, um, you know, on, like, a variety of issues interviewing you. Um, obviously, you've uh, done a tremendous job in your career and your profession. But what kind of student were you? I'm just sort of interested. Were you always like that? Or, did you know, was school easy for you, tough for you growing up? Um, yeah, you know, I, I was a strong student academically. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was sick. She, she got cancer when I was five and died when I was 11. And so I was, um, I was at the hospital a lot in my childhood. We would visit her every night when she was hospitalized and she was hospitalized, uh, eight times and some of them were pretty lengthy. And, uh, so sometimes I was kind of a nerd because there wasn't, um, you know, there weren't a lot of other kids to like play with at the hospital. So I'd bring my Rubik's cube and I kind of mastered that. And the doctors and nurses would come in to like watch me do it. Um, (laughs) And then if like nurses were changing her, my dad and I would walk down the hall and look at the art on the wall. So I developed an art appreciation. Um, So I I don't know. I had a a somewhat unusual childhood that way. And I I helped her when at home, I helped a lot, you know, whether it was um, helping to clean and cook and um, other things helped take care of her. 
And then um, my dad worked full time. So after she passed, I had to take on a lot of responsibility at a pretty young age. You know, I'd schedule any appointments I needed and I would walk, you know, to my own doctor appointments in town. Um, wow. in and, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, but yeah. I was a happy kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always had a positive outlook about everything. And, um, I, you know, I think, I, I don't know, it, it, like when I was in uh, first or second grade, you know, I can remember at recess, the kids would always say, let's play fall the leader, Susan, you be the leader. And <laughs> I'd always look kind of surprised, like, again, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily looking to be a leader, but I found that that happened a lot. Um, I, I don't know. So I, I think I've always, I've kind of marched to my own drum or, you know, had my own ideas, but somehow it seems like people will start following me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I don't necessarily seek that, but, um, I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I always had a lot of friends. I, I think I, I like to get along with people and I, I really just enjoy people. Yeah. You know, your mother dying at 11, I mean, how did you cope with that? Was it, did it inspire you to be as successful as you are to sort of live up to her teacher legacy or make her proud? Or, I mean, um, I lost my mom in my twenties, but Mm. at 11 is, you know, I I can't imagine. How did that shape you and who you are today? Well, I'm sorry about your mom. I, I think, you know, it's hard at any age to lose a parent. And I, mm-hmm. I, I've watched friends lose parents, you know, who are in their 40s and 50s. And it, it I think, can be even more devastating in some ways because they've known them as an adult and known them so long. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at 11, I, I think it is hard. And I, I do, when I hear kids in our district who lose a parent at a young age, it, you know, I, I feel for them and um, try, try, I've tried to be there for other, other kids I've heard in similar situations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's hard because you only know your one experience, so I, I don't really know how to compare it exactly. But uh, I, you know, there, there were a lot of times maybe after she had passed, you know, in, in high school, like, you know, picking out a prom dress without a mom, you know, mm-hmm. high school graduation, no mom. Those, those were moments that were particularly sad and hard. Yeah. Um, just feeling like, you know, that there, there were when I would feel like I needed one <laughs> and right. that I didn't have one. That wasn't an option. Um, some of her friends, I mean, definitely there was a community that kind of pitched in, I think. Um, she had been active with PTA and she was a former teacher as well. And so a lot of people at the schools knew her. Um, and I think I think there were definitely times when I look back and I think, I wonder if I got asked to do this out of sympathy, you know, like different mm-hmm. opportunities, like eighth grade, they asked if I wanted to be the yearbook editor. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe people thought she just lost her mom. Why don't we give her this opportunity? So... Mm-hmm. I think there was kind of a community that looked out for me in ways, um, which was really nice. Um, and I'm very close to my dad. You know, yeah. he, he uh, I don't think he ever planned on being a single parent, but he rose to the occasion and, w- and was great. Yeah. Um, so I, I always felt I had love. And I, you know, I had uh, aunts and uncles in L.A. as well and saw them every weekend. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't feel like I went without family, but I, I did. And my brother, I have an older brother. He's six years older. So he was sometimes yeah. like an extra parent, too, because of that six years. Right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. that's cool. I mean, your, your mother definitely is to be super proud of you with everything that you've accomplished, um, you know, that we're aware of in the public eye, you know, and um, you have a couple of kids yourself now. Or can you I tell do. Me yeah, so my kids are both in college now. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, you know, 16 years ago when I was <laughs> first joined the board, they were little. Um, yeah. You know, I remember that, yeah, when I first ran for office, I went door to door. The very first day, the first doorbell we rang, um, the person came out with a bowl of M&Ms, which was odd because it was September. It wasn't anywhere near Halloween. But for whatever reason, they saw two kids. They said, hold on, and brought out this bowl of M&Ms. And so for years, my kids loved canvassing with me because they kept hoping any house later would do that. And I don't think it ever happened again. But um, but I remember we canvassed <laughs> for DOS. We canvassed for a lot of a lot of different candidates over the years. And it was that first M&M experience that, <laughs> that worked for them. You were hooked. Yeah. You were hooked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they were little then. Now they're um, they're both in college. And uh, my daughter's studying electrical engineering. Um, this summer, she's working for a company, a startup out of San Francisco that builds drones. 
Okay. Uh, and the drones deliver medical supplies to remote areas. Wow. So they, which is really cool, I think. Um, so they're they're bringing uh, like blood supplies to pregnant women in Africa um, and other PPE to remote areas in the South US. Um, so that I'm, I'm kind of excited. Both my kids did the engineering academy at DP and uh, have, you know, that really inspired them to continue with engineering. And so it's, it's cool to see her using that, um, you know, in a, in a way that's really meaningful to her with, with the medical supply delivery through drones. I think that's pretty neat. Um, and then my son is, um, he is, just finished his freshman year. Of course, it was an unusual freshman year with one third of it remote from home. Um, but he, uh, he studied with a uh, humanities-based program this past year where they lived in the dorms and talked about great philosophers um, throughout the year uh, with discussions all night long, I think. And then um, this summer, he, um, he hasn't decided on his major yet, but this summer he's working for a conservation lab. Um, they're working on ecological conservation in Costa Rica. Oh, okay. And of course, he's working remotely from Santa Barbara, but um, he's doing machine language algorithms, so artificial intelligence, um, to follow the patterns in bird songs to see ecological changes in the ecosystem there in Costa Rica, which will oh, help you, us understand climate change more broadly. You got some brilliant kids. Wow. <laughs> that I think they're fun. I, I, they're, you know, I'm, again, I'm never bored in conversations with them. They always uh, have really interesting takes on what's going on in the world and what they're studying and thinking about and their friends are doing. So, yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah. So, so uh, tell me a little bit about what's next for you. you you've, you're not running for school board. We've got an election coming up and there's some new candidates. Why are you leaving the school board now? Um, well, I, you know, it has been four terms, which is a long time. And yeah. with my youngest now in college, I'm excited to pursue other professional opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, and the filing period for the November election uh, just passed mid July to mid August. So I announced in April, I was completing my service at the end of the year, um, in order to give new candidates time to think about it and, and so they could file. Um, and I'm, I'm very actively participating. Of course, with the pandemic, there is so much happening. It's almost been 24 seven as a school board member over the last month. Yeah. Um, it's really requiring all of us to work together to meet these critical needs. And I, I look forward to continuing to actively participate as we lead our district through this. What and, do you think, uh, sorry, let me just, uh, what do you think you're gonna miss most about not being on the school board? Huh. I love it all. <laughs> so, um, you know, I love I love getting my board packets. It's like a gift when that arrives, you know, on Fridays before. Um, I really like to delve in and look at all the policies and think about the issues because it all seems so important to me. Um, I love the constituent work. You know, I, I my kids found it funny growing up, but we couldn't go to the market or the gym or wherever we'd be around town without someone coming up and starting to talk to me about what challenge their kid was having or a teacher with something they were having. And uh, I always would stop and listen. So if going to the market might've taken an extra hour, that's okay. And, uh, and then usually it was just like a phone call, you know, to the superintendent. And I'd say, you know, someone shared this and, you know, I never, you know, we weren't, we're not supposed to just assume anything's true and there could be other sides to it, but I always share, this happened and it doesn't sound like that's our policy. Is it something you could look into? And then usually things are resolved and I get back to the person and they go, wow, you worked a miracle. And I no, I just did a phone call. It's my <laughs> job, you know, but yeah. it, it is rewarding to help people. I really like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that piece is fun. Um, and the meetings themselves, I think, you know, I talked about the human drama aspect. And then, you know, as, as someone who went to law school and took public policy classes, I like the persuasion part. <laughs> you uh, know, it's it's uh, it's fun to, I often like to start a conversation and, and I don't do it every issue that comes to us, but I often um, like to frame it. So I'll read the packet and I'll think this is really a matter of, you know, and I put it into a broader context. And so I come, I get there and I, I'll, I kind of, I don't talk too long. I don't like to waste time, but I'll say, you know, it's kind of this issue versus that issue. Here are the different factors. When I weighed it, I came out here. And then often that same framing will be used throughout the discussion. And, and often my colleagues will say that was really helpful. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't always do that. There was a recent meeting where I, I intentionally spoke last. I, I forget what the topic was, but it was something where I was really torn. I really wanted to just listen and think and then maybe be able to wrap it and shape things as we concluded the conversation. So um, I do think strategically about when I speak and what I'm saying. Um, and I find that that aspect of um, governing publicly, you know, it's very different than a private nonprofit or company where you, you, you meet in private rooms, you know, that the public governance and discussion that can then lead to, to change, you know, making things better. Um, that process has been really fascinating and fun for me. Um, so I, I will miss those three aspects for sure. Yeah. Um, but I am someone who really likes novelty and yeah. 16 years of doing one thing feels long. Like I'm, I'm excited to do other things. And, uh, will you continue to, uh, stay in this community to, to do the, the work that you're going to be doing? Or I'm very interested in, um, technology and policy. That's been yeah. something I've been going to a number of conferences the last couple of years in that area, thinking about, um, responsible uses of technology has become a real uh, emerging field. You know, we, we see that with all the um, major tech companies going to Congress lately, right, where people are concerned about how maybe they have amassed too much power. There's data privacy issues, cybersecurity issues. Um, and then even within artificial intelligence, which was my undergraduate degree, um, we're now seeing a lot of bias in the machine language algorithms themselves. Um, and um, I think you may have seen in the news that facial recognition software has now been banned um, because of those concerns. So that that emerging area is really interesting to me. Um, as I said, I like novelty and it's a new it's a new space and there's a I think it has um, a lot of impact. you know there's almost uh, most companies are now starting to use artificial intelligence and even mm-hmm. small businesses and nonprofits in mm-hmm. surveys are saying they expect they'll be adopting it in the next couple of years. They don't even necessarily know what it is, but they know it's coming. And so to the extent that can roll out in a way that is helpful to humanity and not hurtful really matters to me. So um, facial, facial recognition has been banned in what, what context? So um, they were using it, uh, law enforcement was using it and oh. others were using it. And what they found was there were studies where um, they, particularly MIT did a big study in this where they, the software would look at images and they uh, inappropriately identified African-American women in particular, Um, but just generally um, along race, the the software was very prone to biases Um, and it was deeply problematic. And it's not that the trainers were necessary, the people who um, trained the machines were racist, but the way that the algorithms were structured they're based on past data. That's all, all machine learning you use. Mm-hmm. You get these huge databases that are all information about the past because that's what's stored in a database. And then the machines study and figure out the patterns to predict the future and help people make future decisions. But it's like the opposite of progress, right? Because if you're studying the past and then that's how you're basing the future, you're just going to keep perpetuating the past, right? Mm-hmm. And because machine learning makes things so much faster, it was like accelerating and deepening bias. It's 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 sort of technical, but the yeah. concept is really deeply problematic. So right. um, luckily there are people looking at this um, at universities. Some companies have now created departments, you know, or, or, or a person who's kind of an ethical AI person. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's foundations that are looking into how they can fund work um, to prevent that. And there's both, you know, avoiding bias and, and trying to stop that and, you know, also uh, infringing on people's privacy. Mm-hmm. Then there's also how technology can be used for good. And because a lot of uh, problems are being solved by corporations, right? There's been all this disruption with Silicon Valley coming up with the next uh, greatest app or cloud-based service. Um, those are all things where there's a financial incentive, but there's a lot of important problems that are in health or education, hunger, um, that companies may not see a financial incentive to work on, but where artificial intelligence could really make great leaps in our ability to address significant issues in our world. 
Mm -hmm. And so universities are doing research in those areas and foundations and trying to figure out how to get funding either from philanthropy or from government to fund that important work. Wow. Yeah, you do so much cool stuff. You're going to have your hands full for sure <laughs> uh, going forward. Um, and what about uh, politics? You um, Are you out? Uh, you leave the door open, something down the road, or do you ever think about um, running for it's anything again? Yeah, I'm not, it's not something I'm looking at. Um, I'm, I, you know, I had, I've had an amazing experience in public service for the last 16 years. Um, and sometimes I feel like I've been really just so lucky because we haven't had, you know, it hasn't been, an, uh, rarely do we get a, a large crowd of angry people. <laughs> right. um, and some of that I think is we've managed it really well. There was more of that, I understand, in the past, you know, if you go back 20 years. Um, and some of it, I think, is just the culture in Goleta um, has been really collaborative. Um, and we do a lot of a good job of communicating what we're doing so people aren't upset yeah. and, and reaching out. Um, but it's been it's been an excellent experience. And so, um, I, you know, could I someday ever run for something? I suppose it's not you know, I'm not going to like close the door and say never, but it's not something I'm thinking about at this time. I'm really excited about other work. Um, I think my, my life's mission has really been to make the world a better place. And um, I did that mostly in the nonprofit sector in my 20s. Um, and now I'm, I'm thinking, you know, whether I want to work in foundations or the business side. Um, just, there's so many socially responsible businesses happening. I'm really interested in that space. I'm interested in impact investing and how that can be a lever for change. Um, so I'm kind of excited for new challenges. Great. Well, Susan, it's been my pleasure to, to talk to you. I learned so much and uh, you obviously are going to be very missed uh, on the school board. Uh, lots of amazing contributions you've had over the years, but you're going to obviously continue to do amazing work, um, you know, going forward in all these other areas. So thanks for uh, taking the time and I look forward to following what you're going to do next. Thank you for hosting me. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation.